0: Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond and today we are joined by author and comic book writer David Talman. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work?
1: Oh, um, well I've been writing for about 10 years and writing full-time for the last five years. My first published novels were a series with Angry Robot which began with a book called Giant Thief, um, which I guess was sort of comic fantasy, like light fantasy. But I've, I've written just about everything at one point or another, I've done quite a lot of horror, um, I had a science fiction novella out with Tor.com, and my current series is again back to the sort of comic fantasy style, uh, which is a series called the Black River Chronicles, which began with a book called Level One, um, I guess two years ago now, maybe a little over.
0: And right now, you're promoting level two of the Black River Chronicles, which is out from Digital Fiction Publishing. Indeed. And the Black River Chronicles, I have to say to our listeners, are one of the few books that Megan and I both enjoy, which is very, very rare. Um, But these books, you say, are based on Dungeons & Dragons. So what gave you the idea behind this?
1: Well, it actually started, it began as a commission of sorts. Um, Basically, my editor, my editor and publisher, uh, Michael Wills, who runs Digital Fiction, um, he'd had an idea that he wanted to develop and he didn't feel that he could write it himself. So we sort of back and forth on it. And in the end, we kind of agreed to co-write it. We sort of co-plotted it. And then I did the bulk of the writing. So, I mean, now it's actually going out under my name, but that was mainly because Mike was being very generous and, um, you know, decided that that was what he wanted to happen because obviously he had a, a huge amount of influence in the early stages. Um, but basically the concept that he came to me with was... In terms of the sort of classic style d d characters, the sort of the fighter, the wizard, the rogue, that kind of thing, how do these characters get to the point of being those things? Uh, so his proposal was basically that somewhere out there there has to be a school for this kind of thing, um, and that's that's what the Black River Chronicles are, and that's what the Black River Academy is, which is the, the setting for, so for the first book, not so much for the second.
0: So you're saying that it basically follows, um, they're not really school children, are they? They're sort of young adults and...
1: I, I was thinking about this earlier, I mean, um, because I was thinking, it often gets compared with the Harry Potter books, and to me the big difference is that it's it's not a school, it's an academy, hmm. which in a sense is kind of splitting hairs, but in another sense they're, you know, they're more like cadets they or are. something like that. It's almost more like a military academy than it is like a school.
0: So would you say that um, young adults could appreciate it as much as adults?
1: I hope so. <laughs> Normally that question's posed the other way around, isn't it? Because um, it, it was ostensibly a YA series, but, um, you know, I don't know many teenagers, so my approach was just to sort of write it as I would write normally and, you know, maybe not to use quite so many long words and whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I, I get the impression that young know, adults are enjoying it. I think it's probably more of adult readers.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's it's something that we've discussed on Break the Glass there previously about if you have teenagers within your novels, does that automatically shunt it into the YA category? Um, particularly if you're a female writer or, you know, and not necessarily if you're a male writer. Um, but if we talk a little bit about Dungeons and Dragons, which started out in the 1970s. So can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of it and how it's changed across the years and how you went about incorporating well-known characters and settings, but making them your own along the way as you wrote the novels?
1: Well, oh, I've got to confess I, I was wildly ignorant about this stuff at the point that Mike approached me. Um, my entire experience with D&D extended to one session on an afternoon with uh, some friends of a friend uh, in which I played an alcoholic dwarf bodyguard who refused <laughs> to lift a finger unless uh, the person who was supposed to be bodyguarding was in danger.
0: Does Does that appear in any of your novels so far? No,
1: I mean, <laughs> it might do. He wasn't much of a character, really, but it was a lot of fun to play. Um, but it really wound up the other players um who were very much sort of like I'm the guy with a sword and I hit things kind of level of character development. Um so yeah that was about it really. I mean I, I'd never I'd never played it as a teenager. I'd done a little bit of role playing in my twenties, but with different games. So I was I was kind of coming to it fresh and I was kind of coming to it from other things that had been influenced by D D. So things like um computer games and, and Japanese role-playing games, that kind of thing, that we're sort of picking up those tropes and playing about with them. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm now playing D&D for, like, properly for the first time. Which for is, research purposes, for obviously. For research purposes, yeah. <laughs> it's a fun research project. Um, and I, I, totally by coincidence, a friend got me a book on the origins of D&D. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting topic, really. The book is called Of Dyson Men. Uh, I can't remember who it's written by, but it's, it's well worth a look. Yeah, I mean, it it very much sort of developed out of existing things, but I think the big turning point, the big, uh, the original selling point of Dungeons and Dragons was that it was a lot more freeform, a lot more freeform, a lot more interactive. Uh, although you read these stories about it, and actually the um, the the first what we would call a dungeon master, uh did things like he used to hide behind a filing cabinet <laughs> when he was playing so they actually they couldn't see him. Nice. and they had to like uh that's dedication. Absolutely. And they had to uh the group had to present their decisions as a group and they'd have like a spokesperson and stuff. So it was very really different from, you know, what we would think of as D and D now. Um but yeah, it, it's um Uh, So that wasn't Gary Gainax, who's the very famous originator. That was another guy whose name I can't remember. Um, But they were sort of very much in the same subculture of this kind of thing and board gaming and role playing and stuff. And yeah, it just developed from there. So
0: So how did you pick who your characters are going to be? Because obviously within D&D you've got an awful lot of different characters. You've got um, wizards and bards and clerics and uh, rogues and things like that. And I know that a few spoilers for book two is that we do kind of meet those characters, but but not quite. They're kind of the opposites of Black River. So, I mean, how did you pick on the
1: four that you wanted? I think they were the ones that I personally considered to be the sort of tropiest trope characters. Like, you've got to have a fighter, you've got to have a wizard. After that, I guess it gets a little bit vaguer, but I thought Rogue is very much for sort of... Um, I mean, I was trying to sort of go as far down the tree of... Have these things differentiating as you can. So, hmm. that, you know, you have assassins, but they, they're rogues. Essentially, you know, you have thieves, but they're still kind of a rogue class. So I figured that was kind of the root level of it all. Hmm. Um, and then Ranger. I mean, maybe not so much a trope, but by that point, I think it was just sort of trying to get four characters that were quite differentiated in their skills.
0: And your Ranger is your point of view character, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not the main character. He's somewhat the main character for the first book um but i mean even then maybe not but yeah he's he's sort of our view into the world
0: so duran is the ranger and as i said a point of view character we have tia um a female dun elf who is the rogue yeah uh we have aaron who is the wizard who is a young female dwarf and we have my absolute favorite um who who is the is a male barbarian sort of warrior type so when it came to deciding character traits and gender for these characters how did you go about it i mean you've got a nice even split there are two boys and two girls um i'm assuming that was deliberate um but how did you decide which was going to be the girls and which was going to be the boys
1: well going back to what i was saying about how the whole thing originated um with mike uh the notion of doing something like that the notion of doing something like uh, what in those early days was a very much sort of work for hire it was quite new to me and it was something i was quite unsure about doing really i i mean Everything else I've done was sort of solely my own work, and I had my own projects in development at that time. And I was, you know, a little bit humming and ahhing about, do I want to take time away from this? And the decision that I came to was like, if I can find a way into it, if I can find a story that I really like and characters that I really like, then I'll do it. So the breakthrough was Aaron, really. Aaron was very much the first character that I came up with. And I just sort of fell in love with the character, really. She's a lot of fun and she she was a very sort of definite attempt to get away from, you know, the obvious idea of what a wizard would be, you know, the the, the elderly guy in robes kind of thing. Although she does wear robes, so (laughs) that's still half the cliche. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely I wanted to see gender equity with the party because it, you know, it just sort of seemed like the obvious thing to do in a sense and it it seemed like a good opportunity. Um, And that sort of fell fed through to a lot of other stuff in the books actually like when mm. we go to a second academy they have a female head tutor instead of a male head tutor mm. you know it, it's almost a sort of coin flipping exercise whenever a new character comes in now basically <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah i mean um so two years, obviously will have a female character um and again i guess it's sort of the kind of trope character there, again, sort of tends to be male. I mean, I suppose, in a sense, all of these trope characters tend to be male, although it's though especially if you're going back to the 70s incarnation and everything. So
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've obviously got masses of gamer friends and I spoke to them and there was um, a lot of, of girls who kind of said, well, you know, I didn't really play it in the beginning because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really a girl thing. It was something that boys did. And certainly some of my female friends have said that when they play online games, uh, PC and computer games, they will play a boy to try and avoid any kind of um, abuse that they might get. Which is kind of weird because a lot of the boys who said they played online games said they played as girls. So I, I yeah, don't see do. do you. Yeah, I do. Do you get abuse as being a girl? Or
1: I don't. I mean, I've never really thought about it until recently. I've been playing um, Dark Souls, <laughs> which I'm sure I've mentioned at some point. But yeah, in the third one, um, so I was playing a female character, but I was playing a female character in like full body armour, basically. Mm. Um, and you kind of couldn't tell. And then I suddenly discovered what I've heard referred to as fashion songs, mm. which is basically kind of experimenting with all the different costumes you can wear and stuff. And I found a really nice dress and a really nice <laughs> hat <laughs> and just became dedicated to this new get-up. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, once around in this, this really nice dress and this cute witch's hat, that probably people I was playing the game with we would have seen that I was a female player. Mm. And it had never crossed my mind before, you know, it had never been relevant. But whether those, I mean, there's not much scope for responding to people in Dark Souls, so whether those people are sort of sitting there thinking like, oh no, I don't really <laughs> play with this person or whatever, you know, I have no idea, but...
0: So do you think one of the appeals of gaming, whether that's tabletop, role playing games, uh, longer campaigns, full on LARP, or even uh, computer games we're talking about, is that it allows people to explore the pitfalls and positives of different genders, or even no genders at all?
1: I think it very much just depends on the player. I mean, obviously, but I think for the vast majority of people, I would have to say no, actually. I mean, I love that the scope is there. And it's something that I personally find interesting. But I think, I mean, I, I was looking at the, the little online survey you did on Facebook and it does seem like the majority of people, you know, stick with characters of their own gender. Mm. Maybe less so in video gaming, because yes. obviously that's, it's it's another layer of a move. Um, but I mean, certainly when, when I started playing D&D with a group that I didn't know, even though they're really lovely people, it was a very intimidating experience you know it's it's not an easy thing to do it's uh, you you kind of exposing yourself in quite unusual ways by you know a meeting people but then pretending to be a a totally different person Mm. and again when i was playing it's uh i think it took a long time to sort of for people to differentiate the characters and the players as well Mm. you know because you only come into uh, people in in that role effectively so i mean i think yeah the scope is there and the scope is fascinating but i think at the moment maybe it's not something that gets exploited as much as it might. Hmm.
0: Well, just, we might have gone off a little tangent of uh, of games there, but just thinking back to the Black River Chronicles themselves, your group is made up of four equal protagonists and none of them really lead or act as a sort of a frontman or frontwoman.
1: Well, Tia kind of does. Does she, though? <laughs> I mean, I think she does. She's not supposed to. And this is something I wrestled with a bit as the books have gone on because um, they get given a little speech by the, the head tutor, um, literally in the first chapter, and he very explicitly says, you can't have a leader. Hmm. You know, you, it has to be a completely democratic party. Uh, but then within two chapters, Tia's just completely taken over everything. Because um, she's the only really competent character, basically, in the first book.
0: Well, she is, but there's also the fact that she doesn't actually work as part of the team, because she keeps yeah, going no, off and doing true. other stuff. So you can't really call her a front woman because she doesn't actually remain part of the group. She kind of almost um, divides herself off and then the others kind of make the joint decisions. But I mean, why Why did you think about doing that? Was it because of the gaming background where you obviously all do work as a team or was it a more literary idea that you thought it would be better conflict and tension if you didn't have someone going out in the
1: lead? I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely both. And it's probably a much better reflection of gaming. I think you don't, I mean, you tend to get people who sort of become natural leaders and that's a little bit reflected with what Tia's doing. You know, there'll always be somebody who wants to take over and there'll always be people who kind of back off from that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was very much a conscious choice that I I wanted the books to be about all four characters um, as much equally as was possible, really. Mm. And I wanted that to be a driving factor of the story because, you know, ultimately it is about the party, more than it's about the individuals. Mm. You know, it's about this party going on adventures. Um, so, yeah, but but it's also a lot more fun to write that way as well. It's, um, you know, and it, uh, it's an interesting challenge sort of trying to keep everybody in the sun constantly and, mm. and not letting people, you know, pop to the surface and take over the book. And
0: um, So obviously you've got two boys and two girls. Why have you decided not to have at least two of them in a romantic relationship? Is this something you think you might explore in the future?
1: Um, <laughs>
0: without too many spoilers? Yeah,
1: we've had too many spoilers, but also without being really damning <laughs> about the state of YA literature. Um, yeah, I just, I hate tacked on romances. I really do. And it is, I mean, that's an unfair dig at, at YA, I guess. But in everything, in, in Hollywood movies, I hate tacked on romances. You know, I, I hate these scenarios where you basically, you only have two characters, and so those two characters end up together.
0: Well, that's the thing, because you've got four equal characters and two sets of each gender. It's kind of like, oh, at least one pair has got to pair off and I kind of thought it might be Duran and Tia at the beginning of book one but by the end of book two, by the end of book one as well probably even by the end of book two their their relationship seems to be going in a very different direction to romance um but that still leaves us two characters
1: mm, so I yes. mean yes it does <laughs> um I mean the other thing was yeah I, I suppose what I mean in terms of tacked on romances is if if that's in there I mean I love a good romantic story but the aren't that many of them mm. um, and I like I mean for instance in anime you sometimes get shows where romance is the focus over like 26 episodes mm. and I really like that you know I really like watching a relationship develop and all the problems and the arguments and the conflicts that come out of that and the difficulties mm. of it I find that really fascinating but just the sort of these two people fancy each other therefore hey they they must spend the rest of their lives together that kind of thing um, that you get in a sort of two hour Hollywood movie I I find that unbearable so a big part of it was that I wanted us to know the characters before we sort of delve into any of that. So yeah, I mean, it's becoming a bit of a thing in book three. And I think, uh, we were discussing this before, and I think there are sort of seeds of, you can tell who there fancies are... you and that kind of thing. It's yeah. just sort of very noticeably with one character. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, not going to happen, but I didn't want it to be front and centre and I didn't want it to be in the first book. Fantastic
0: do you know anything about the readership of the black river chronicles i mean are they in the majority of people who enjoy tabletop gaming and if, or have you found that the series appeals to people who've never heard of dungeons and dragons and have just taken it up as a piece of fantasy literature
1: we do seem to be getting both i think the best reviews tend to be from people who have at least some familiarity with some aspects of it be it gaming you know be it D and D or whatever <laughs> i'll tell a story that i probably shouldn't but uh our most damning amazon review was um so you were saying ali that in the second book there's a they go to another academy and basically they're assigned um new roles yes. new, new classes um and the joke for me was that those new classes were basically exactly the same as yeah the old classes. exactly
0: that it's but it's it's sort of a culture shift really isn't it i mean i've been listening to um Oh, was it Thud? Not sorry. Um, the Terry Pratchett novels have been going through so many of them in audio books. Um, what's the one I'm thinking of? The Fifth Elephant, where they go to Uberwell from um, Ankle Pork. And it is, it's literally like stepping into a brand new culture and there's so many familiar things and so many different things. And I found that with Level 2 as well, that you kind of take them and put them in what should be exactly the same situation but actually it's just a little bit off kilter they do the same roles but have slightly different names for those roles and they also have focus on different aspects of that roles.
1: Yeah, I mean that is true and it wasn't altogether a joke but for me primarily it was a joke at the sort of, you know in, uh, what are we up to now, is it 5.5 and 50 DD you know there are so many classes and so many subclasses and so much <laughs> stuff and a lot of it is kind of different names for the same thing. Um, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a joke about, but um, the point was we got a, a really damning review from somebody who I don't think actually had read the book, um, but they were so horrified that Darren had turned from a ranger into a bard <laughs> that they literally weren't willing to read the book. Oh dear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it cuts both ways I think. <laughs> you know, when you, when you have people who are that passionate at that kind of level, it's mm. um, obviously that's an element of the readership, but Maybe they're not the ones who are going to stick it through to the, end of the series.
0: Well, that brings us on to sort of a, a wider contemplation. Um, there seems to be a current wave of nostalgia influencing books, TV, films, uh, with things such as Stranger Things or the new live action Disney movies. Do you think this is a good thing, or do you think it would be better to focus on new ideas and concepts?
1: I'm weirdly excited for the live action Milan, actually.
0: But you like the original Milan anyway. I like don't the
1: original you? Milan as well. But, you know, I like a lot of Disney movies that I have no desire to see made into live action. I, I'm kind of intrigued at the notion of a live action Lilo and Stitch it has to be said, but
0: Oh uh, yeah, that would be good. No, it'd be horrifying.
1: It, <laughs> be good. it would be absolutely dreadful. But, but I still scenery. kind of want to see it. <laughs> yes, beautiful scenery, yes. So yeah, I mean I'm really I'm not a big fan of nostalgia, which seems a strange thing to be saying as somebody who's writing books that are, in a sense, probably quite nostalgic. But as I say, that kind of wasn't the way I was coming to at it. I think it very much was from Mike. He wanted to sort of, you know, there were a lot of gags in the first book that came from Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, there's the 10 foot pole that gets, uh, nearly gets carried around throughout the entire book. Um, and the length of rope, which is like a, you know, old school D and D gag. And I love that stuff. I'm really glad it's in there. But Mm. to me, it was quite alien because I, you know, I, I wasn't there at the start. So I was coming to add it from, you know, much more modern stuff really but yeah i mean i haven't seen stranger things i have to admit but generally everything that i've seen that sort of drawing on that well of 80s nostalgia just doesn't really appeal to me
0: so having seen a few bits of it is there anything that you think really should not have been rebooted at all
1: or i don't think any of it should have been rebooted <laughs> um i think uh, i was discussing this with a friend actually and we were sort of of the, the same opinion. And then the one thing that we thought of is a film called Midnight Express. No, wait on. Midnight Special. That was <laughs> that was his confusion that I corrected him on. Um, yeah, Midnight Special, the science fiction film, which is very much a homage to Spielberg and 80s Spielberg, very much a homage to John into Starman as well. And that's all there, and it's kind of front and centre, but it's also very much its own beast, Um, And it's very modern in a lot of ways, and I really like the way it incorporates that stuff. Mm. So that I'm okay with, and that, you know, is potentially quite exciting. But I mean, you know, the Disney adaptations, I I say this to somebody who hasn't seen them, but they just seem to be very slavish recreations of something that really doesn't need to be recreated. Except for Mulan. Except for Mulan, which, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose part of the appeal to that is, I mean, A, it's a very short film. Like a very short film, even by Disney standards um so i think they could sort of pad out the world a bit Mm. and b i just think that there's stuff that you can do with that story in live action that you couldn't do in an animated film Mm. whereas i don't think that was the case for something like beauty and the beast or cinderella you know i think i think those films are probably the best versions of those stories well not that are possible because la bella la bette is a much better film um (laughs) but you know of, of that kind of take on that kind of story they nailed it They don't need to come back to it. They don't need to do it again. Hmm. So, yeah, I think if there's new ground to be covered, if if you're sort of taking elements of these things and trying to make something a little bit new of them, then that's great. Um, Nostalgia for its own sake, I think, maybe not such a good thing.
0: So if you're not a big fan of sort of nostalgia, unless it's um, Mulan, what would would be the, the best movie or book that you've read recently that explores a completely new topic?
1: oh again i was i was really struggling over this one um and i had to go back quite a long way um and yeah i mean thinking about it it's like i i mean do you ever encounter something that feels completely fresh you know it's uh, the more you read and the more you watch you're always sort of recognising ingredients, even when those ingredients are sort of done in quite a fresh fashion. Um, but the only thing I could really think of was uh, Dogtooth, the Greek movie, Um uh, his name, I can't remember, I think it's Lanthimos. Um But I mean, everything he's done is exceptionally original, uh, to a greater or lesser degree, but his first movie, which is almost indescribably weird, um, but just very, very fresh and and surprising sort of moment by moment as well you know it, it's one of those things where with each scene you really have absolutely no idea what's going to happen mm. um so yeah i mean that's that's probably about as reasons as i can think of really
0: so obviously we've talked about Black River and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and things, but actually the next novel of yours out um, is Bad Neighbour, which is sort of a crime thriller novel. So what made you want to step out of the fantasy realm from previous books like uh, The Giant Thief Trilogy and The Black River, R- River Chronicles into more gritty realism?
1: Well, I had done crime once before. Um, I wrote a crime short story that ended up in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, which was quite fluky for, for my one crime story. Um, so it had always been bubbling away Uh, and I think crime's always been a bit of an element in my books as well. I mean, obviously giant thief does have a thief in it. Um, And you know, everything I've written, I think has little elements of crime. I enjoy reading crime a lot, Hmm. probably more than I enjoy reading fantasy and sci-fi. So um, there was that kind of obvious appeal, but basically what happened with the bad neighbor was that it came very strongly out of uh, my life circumstances at the time, I guess. Um, I just moved back to the north having lived for quite a long time well all over the country really but in London just beforehand uh, and I moved to Leeds for the first time and I was doing a lot of house buying in in quite rundown areas quite rough bits of Leeds and just had a lot of weird experiences um and then once I got my house within two weeks I got robbed so <laughs> suddenly I sort of had a lot more experience with you know uh, Well, crime on a personal level, I suppose, but also just sort of ingredients that would fit nicely into a crime novel. And it just sort of really felt like the bare bones of a story. And actually, the big breakthrough with it was, um, again, I probably shouldn't say this, (laughs) just on the off chance that my neighbor should listen to this podcast, which is very unlikely. Um, But I discovered that there's no wall in my attic. Uh, you and literally, I can, I could get into my neighbor's house if I wanted to.
0: No, I think you mean the word theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: hypothetically. <laughs> In a completely imaginary scenario that would never happen. I could potentially get into my neighbor's house and my neighbor could get to my house. Uh, which was quite a shocking concept. So yeah, it was just that all these things came together really
0: so when writing a crime novel um how do you go about planning and writing it is it the same as a fantasy series or do you do things completely differently i know you said you had elements of crime within your previous um fantasy novels but when you're completely focused on this one crime and these characters how do you go about it compared to say how you went about writing um black river and giant thief
1: my process has actually been more or less the same ever since crime thief which was my second book um so this is an experience that anybody i think who's had a book uh, bought and then other books commissioned on the back of that so when you write your first book you have like well you have as long as you like to write it basically um, and in my case I think it was about four years to write Giant Thief uh, then it comes to your second book and your second book you have 12 months to write <laughs> and this seems unimaginable and absolutely impossible and probably like me you've got a full time job as well at the time um, and it's you know it's horrifying it's a shock to the system and also, you have to tell your publisher what you're going to be writing, so that means a detailed synopsis. Um, so with all of this, I ended up with a process, which is basically I, I write a short synopsis, uh, develop that into a long synopsis, then break that down into the chapter plan, and then work off the chapter plan. Um, and that's pretty much how I've written everything, uh, with the exception of the novella patchwork, which I didn't plan, which was a terrible mistake. <laughs> Um, but everything else, is, that's how I've written it. So I'm trying to think if there were any differences with The Bad Neighbour, but I, I don't think there were, really.
0: It's interesting you to mention patchwork, because I read that the other day, and it's um, it, despite you not planning it, it is very fluid and seems to hang together quite
1: well. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was the case of having to build the structure in afterwards, which hmm. uh, is why I say it wasn't there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there were things that I could have done better if I'd planned it. So it's a bit frustrating for me to come back to, But I mean, I'm very fond of the book, obviously. And I I think you end up with a certain energy that way that you maybe lose a little bit the other way. I don't know. But um, yeah, I I certainly would never try and write a novel uh, just off the top of my head like that, because it is awfully tricky. And you do back yourself into corners and you do have to dig yourself out of a lot of holes and things.
0: Well, that's the end of our interview. Thank you very much for joining us, David. We've gone all the way through fantasy, crime, gender stereotyping and gaming. And of course, we've touched upon Mulan, which seems to crop up in a lot of our podcasts these days. I look forward to the alcoholic dwarf bodyguard making appearance in later Black River books. So do I. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Please join us again next time.